Welcome to Honestly, the show that tells. I'm Paul Bombush, poet, pontificator, and purple people eater. And I'm Billy Criswell, a modern feminist, prodigious multitasker, and bossy Italian wife. Today's show is brought to you by obnoxious sounds and annoying people. Our topics are public deaths, private deaths, and another election update. We are starting with our cheerful topic, public deaths, private deaths, as opposed to our depressing topic, which will come next, the election. (laughs) Now, I get this idea for this topic because Prince died, uh, breaking news. And And it's been like a year like that. Yeah. Where celebrities have just been dropping like flies. Like flies, like super flies. Super flies. Uh, we oh. lost David Bowie, we lost Merle Haggard, and there have been other musicians and actors. Alan Rickman, the actor, died. And Is that the um, Professor Snape? Snape. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was like, that was pretty shocking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, okay, so I've been fascinated by the way our society and our generation comes together collectively to react to these beloved public figures Mm -hmm. who die. And I think in this topic, we can compare and contrast that to the way we react to a private private death. Yeah, Uh, Like someone you actually know. Right. And I guess I'll start by saying you're sort of... You're not really allowed to criticize one of these beloved artists who dies right in the wake of their death. I think it's interesting because even in a funeral, relatives of the departed will often interject little nuggets of criticism. We know Johnny wasn't perfect, right? Or he he could have a bit of a temper, and everyone everyone's like, (laughs) everyone laughs. But but I think people feel it necessary in a funeral to. Be a bit honest. Do not put just a total gloss on the person, but to depict the three-dimensional person that they loved. Because right. everyone has their quirks and is problematic. I mean, God knows I mean, what... Look at wh- me! Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, when I kick the bucket, I hope my relatives will be like, you know, he was a jerk, but we loved him. <laughs> but I would never say, well... But with these... <laughs> with these uh, Prince and David Bowie, Merle Haggard. There's almost this fascistic, like shutting out of any kind of criticism of their music or negative attitudes toward them. And I, one of my Facebook friends, posted, "If you're not listening to Prince right now, then I don't trust you." Uh, <laughs> it's like, I don't whoa, really, and it's I, a little extreme. Yeah, and I, but I think the reason why there's that intense fervor after these deaths is it's one of the few times in our culture for community building, for people to come together. And that actually reminds me of a private funeral where you have disparate family members who haven't seen each other in a long time. And the only time they get together is for weddings and funerals. Mm -hmm. And so... Or as my cousin Matt says, Marians and Barians. (laughs) Does he have three teeth or four teeth? I think he has six. (laughs) Uh, So when a Bowie or a Prince dies, it, it becomes a chance for everyone to gather around something on social media. Now, you were saying you didn't really post about Prince because you you just didn't feel like it was necessary for you to get in on that, even though you like Prince. Yeah, I like Prince. I mean, yeah, his music is amazing. Um, 
you know, it's, I don't know, for me, like, I'm not, I don't know, I just didn't feel compelled, I guess. I didn't feel compelled. I mean, so many people were posting about Prince. It's like, in the scheme of things, like, what's my post about Prince gonna do for everybody right now? And it's, you know, I'm always open, I'm always open to sharing. Like, I believe that public and share, I believe in, like, the public life, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I share lots of stuff about my personal life publicly on my blog or in the podcast and things like that, because I feel like it's beneficial. But that's, like, more about, like, my personal life. This was not personal in any way to me. Um, Do you think some people, even though they weren't that passionate about Prince, decided to post about him just to be part of the action? Yeah, of course. I mean, what I read an interesting quote that I'm going to paraphrase for you now um, it, that I thought was interesting. And it said it was something along the lines of we grieve the passing of celebrities or artists, not because we knew them, but because they helped us know ourselves. Hmm. So I think that is kind of the spirit in which people are like are compelled. I mean, to me, this was not like Prince was not an artist who necessarily helped me get to know myself. So I didn't feel that sense of like, I needed to post about it. I think in hindsight, you know, as they've come out and said, you know, this, this may have been a a drug overdose and things like that. I think to me, that's more compelling almost Mm. than his career. Um, because it's like, so it's so senseless. There's, there's no reason why a healthy, uh, vibrant person like Prince needs to be dead because he was addicted to prescription painkillers. Somebody who would have maybe never picked up heroin, right? Yeah. To be dead over something arguably so trivial. I feel like that's a conversation we need to be having, but no one wants to have that conversation. You know, it's so it's to me, I, I if I, I guess in a way, like you talk about, like, don't speak ill of the dead. Like, if you don't have something nice to say, sometimes you just say nothing. It's Mm. not that saying that is unkind in some way to Prince. It's just saying that maybe we're missing the point a little bit here. I think um, these deaths of artists and musicians and actors, uh, the fact that they seem to inspire the biggest outpouring of love does inspire me in the sense that it shows that artists are our biggest heroes. Yeah. I mean, they really are. They really are. They, and that then communicates that art, art is the meaning of life. Mm. Basically. Well, love is the meaning of life and art is an expression of love. Art is the way, the the most articulate expression of love. And besides food. And so, you know, politicians die, and yes, some people grieve. Um, Actually, but when Scalia died, or not, was it Scalia? Yeah. Am I misquoting? Okay. I'm like, wait a second, all right? Um, people were, like, pissed. What? I mean, there was, like, so much rage that there, came It wasn't out. So really there's not grief. A, it wasn't, there's not a feeling. There's not that feeling. I'm, right, I'm backing up your right, point right. and saying there's not that feeling that, like, Prince dies, and people are, like, visibly bereft. You know? Right. But, and however, I, I almost wish that we had the kind of debate on a, about the aesthetics and artistic worth of an artist after they died that we had about Scalia when he died. We had two mm. sides of the aisle debating it. And for instance, I am not a fan of 
rock music or country music or really... Which is why this is an interesting topic yeah. because I would say you're like an outlier to pop culture. I am. and Which is quite an accomplishment. I mean, I'm, I mean that as a compliment. I'm proud of it. I've resisted it my whole life. Ever since I was a little kid, that... Just the, the relentless rhythm of rock music has felt oppressive to me and irritated me. And so I've never... I've never liked the music that my friends like, and I love classical and jazz music, so I feel very alienated when a David Bowie or a Prince dies or a Michael Jackson dies, because I really strongly dislike the music, actually, and I think it's been detrimental to our culture and vulgarized our culture and made people dumber. So I have very negative opinions about all these people. I know that makes me a curmudgeon, but deal with it. And... So, but in a way, I share in the grief because, but when that happens, but it's a different kind of grief for me. It's a grief of not being part of my generation. Oh, that is and so you. All of the people, <laughs> of my heroes are dead, basically. I love classic films, but all those directors and actors mostly are dead. I love classical music. I love the great poets of the past. And there are very few people today, I was trying to think, I mean, I could, I could almost think of no one who, if they died today... I would feel this profound sense of loss. But that in and of itself is a sense of loss for me, a sense of distance from from this world that I'm reminded of every time one of these people dies. So even though it's a very different kind of sadness when Prince dies, for me, it's still it's still a sadness to see all these people being able to partake in this community that I, you know, not only well, do I not care about, but I, I think is is bad. Here's a point that I have about that is that, you know, th- this um, whole outpouring of Facebook and you see it on the media and you see it on that, it, it, in a way, and I'm all, I'm all for, you know, like I said, I'm all for sharing and having the public thing. But I mean, you're saying that you're, oh, you're mourning that you're not like able to participate in that community, but participate in what community? It's happening Virtually, these people mm. aren't actually doing anything to connect, and that is where um, I sort of go in my mind when I'm thinking about this. Like, what is the connection behind it, really? Mm-hmm. You know, like there's mm-hmm. not. I mean, if you're local and you go to like to leave flowers at Prince's like house in or something like that. Yeah, like in Minneapolis, like when they're doing that. And that's cool. Like, to me, if I was able to do that, I would probably do that. Like, I remember a local guy died. Um, his name is Matt Haley. He was a chef here. He died very tragically in a motorcycle accident. It was really, really sad. Um, people were putting stuff out on Facebook, and I was like, well... <laughs> I'm here. I'm just going to, like, go. So I, like, got flowers and went and, like, left them at the restaurant. Like, to me, like, that's more of, like, a a connection. So if I'm going to do something public, I'm going to do it, like, in actual public. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, to me... I guess that's why I didn't post anything on Facebook. But, public, you know? public figures are different from private figures. Uh, it, one of the things that makes them different is they're owned more collectively by the public, I would say. And that's why it's, it's okay for me to speak, for people to speak ill of the public dead when they die. Because 
At that moment, when a Ronald Reagan dies or a Scalia dies or a Michael Jackson dies, I think the whole world's attention is on the legacy of that mm-hmm. person. And that's and and the legacy is being shaped and formed by discussions that are happening immediately after the death. And I remember when Reagan died, the coverage was I, I felt like it was overwhelmingly positive and whitewashed, and I wish there had been more people being a little nasty. And I, I understand the family members are still grieving, but you know what? The, when you rise to that level, your legacy and reputation is more important than protecting the family members of a famous person from any negative things said about them. Um, so I think we should be very vigorous, actually, after a person dies. And when Michael Jackson died, he was that, compared to yeah. the... Mo- he, when Michael Jackson died, he was called the Mozart of our time by that some people. That kind of bothered me only and, because, personally, like, I mean, he was like a child molester. So. He was a child molester, <laughs> and there is no Mozart of our time. Mozart was the Mozart of his time and all time. And had any, any of these people actually listened to Don Giovanni or Mozart symphonies or great divertimentos or piano concertos? No, they just want to think that there is a Mozart of our time because they don't want us to realize that we're living in a crap time. No, with I'm no just, talent. That's not true. I don't disagree with you, but I will say if, if there was ever a Mozart of our time, certainly it was John Lennon. So, Knock it off, people. Nobody <laughs> compares to the Beatles. And I'm sorry. Like, to me, like, I remember being, like, a 12-year-old kid and, like, really getting into the Beatles. And then, like, knowing that John Lennon was dead and, like, feeling this enormous sense of loss over that. Like, that is probably, like, the biggest loss to me. I was going to ask you, who... Of the people still living, either in arts or politics or writing or whatever, who would you grieve the most? Who comes to mind immediately if I can't imagine a world without them? Like, probably any of the members of Fish. Fish, I would be, like, like, that was one thing we said. Like, Trey Anastasio, uh, the lead singer and guitarist of Fish, he had a prescription pill problem. He was famously treated successfully through drug courts, which we support in my household. Um... And we thought to ourselves when we saw, like, the Prince headlines, we were like, man, like, we could have come so close to that. You know, like, that would be a great loss for us because, you know, they're doing great things in music. And you can say that there's no great artists today in music. And it's just not true. It's not true. There's lots of great artists doing really groundbreaking things. I agree. I just, it's... I'm not going to stand idly by and hear Michael Jackson compared to Mozart. And at that point, I feel like just as you would debate Scalia or Reagan, I have to speak up and say, no, no, he's not Mozart. He's not Bach. And see now. And we and then and then we can have a debate about that, I, about whether his music is as good as Mozart or not. But but, for, but but I feel oppressed in the wake of these deaths of figures where you really hyperbolic celebratory rhetoric. And I think since the arts are so important. Since, the, since they are central to our lives, we should take them as seriously as politics and the death of a, uh, a policymaker or, or Supreme Court justice, and we should get vigorous and, and potentially nasty about these debates. I don't disagree debates. with you, but I think that immediately following someone's death is not the time to do that. I think it's exactly the time. Well, we just aren't going to agree on that. Because I mean, I think you wait having- a few days and the story starts to go away, and then that whole national debate, that train has gone by. 
Yeah, but I, I also think, like, well, I think that people are so, like, their attention spans are so short, and that's all part of the problem. Like, I, I, I feel like there's, like, always a good time to have a debate but and to have intelligent thought. Um, I just don't know that our media is, like, capable of leading intelligent discussion at this point. And we'll get into that in our election update segment. I mean, shifting on this thing of speaking yeah. Ill, Ill of the dead. Let's, you know, you're going to shift into private. Private death. Private because, death. so this is something I, I have maybe a little more experience with. Um, you know, and it's funny, like, we all grieve very differently. And if you've ever lost someone who's close to you, um, and, you know, we see this in social media, too, a lot everybody grieves differently when they lose someone sometimes you know sometimes you don't um some people post about it some people don't post about it but if you've lost someone who's close to you then you know how you grieve and we all grieve very differently I tend to be sort of the toe the line kind of gal when it comes to death I've cleaned out bedrooms I've you know I I'm the person who shows up I may not even cry for like days like a week um it takes me a really long time to grieve, but I don't tend to spend a lot of time like depressed over death, even though I may be very stricken by it, um, or at least I would say it's been up to this point. How would you say that you grieve when someone dies? Uh, I have been very fortunate in not having any tragic deaths of someone close to me in my immediate uh, nuclear family or a friend of mine um, my uh, both of my grandmothers passed away and my grandfather in my life one of my grandfathers in my lifetime the other one had passed away before I was born um, and what one of the grandmothers who passed away did so when I was I guess old enough to grieve in a more adult way. And I was about to, so here's my story. I was about to graduate from college, but finals week was coming up. And uh, this was Grandma Jean, my dad's mother, and she was a piece of work. She had, uh, uh, she could tear people apart. They're always the best ones. I loved her, exactly. But I connected with her, I think, better than a lot of people in the family because I found her hilarious. And I think as a gay guy, you love those strong women. Mm-hmm. And she she was a wonderful person on many levels, but a very thorny person on other levels. So she died, and I, and, um, I, I thought I was feeling sort of nothing and feeling a sto- having a stoical experience. Because mm-hmm. I, I guess as an atheist and existentialist who thinks life is absurd and unfair, I... I, I like to think in a way I'm above grief. I've, I'm feel, I view these things so aloofly. It's so funny. So what happened, though, was... I'll try to tell this story quickly. So this was after Obama had won the Democratic nomination, and we're about to graduate from college, and it turned out... And, and the, the president of the college announced that we were going to have a very high-profile speaker at the graduation. And all the student body started assuming it was going to be Obama and everyone got really excited. This was in the height of sort of Obama mania because Obama was from Chicago mm-hmm. and my college Northwestern was in Evanston close to Chicago. And 
Uh, everyone got really excited, and, and the principal said things that kind of fed this impression it was going to be Obama. So it turned out, no, it was the mayor of Chicago, whatever his name, Daly, who no one cared about, at least <laughs> not the young people. And there was, and a lot of the young people expressed disappointment about that, and the national media caught onto the story and interviewed some Northwestern students who were disappointed, and then Northwestern students were portrayed as these spoiled elitist brats who weren't grateful for having the mayor of Chicago come, and it became a national story. And so then the president of the student government asked, sent a letter to all the students asking us collectively to apologize for being disappointed that Obama wasn't coming. And I wrote a, and apologize, I guess, in some email to Mayor Daly or something. So I wrote a letter to the president of the student government saying, you coward for throwing us under the bus. We're about to graduate from college. This was the pre- this was the president of the university's fault for, for fomenting these rumors. And you've just made us all look like jerks and asked us to apologize. No, like screw you. You're betraying your classmates. You, you're not standing up for your, your brothers here. Um, screw you. And I was, I was unhinged. I was totally unhinged. And he wrote back and said, you, I'm an Iraq war veteran. I've seen my brethren die. I had no idea this guy's in college. He's an Iraq war veteran. <laughs> and he's like, how dare you, sir? And I wrote, and, and it occurred to me that night, I felt so terrible. And I was like, wow, this is your grief for your grandmother. Well, that's it's a classic, anger. That's a it's classic anger. man thing. Is yeah. People, men process any kind of sadness as anger. I, very- I clearly did, and it was happening without me knowing it. So I wrote him back and apologized and explained. I was like, well, you know, my grandmother died, finals week is coming up, and this is, my anger at you was had nothing to do with anything. I'm really sorry. It was just, it's grief. It's amazing that you were able to, like, about face yeah. that, though. And he cause... forgave me. Uh, so you think. Just kidding. <laughs> that's just, I, that's I'm a long kidding. story, but that's, that's, I think, how I'm probably going to grieve when... Someone close to me does die. So if I'm I, going to think that I'm not feeling anything, and then are. like two weeks later, I'll have like an outburst. Which is funny because I'm like an atheist existentialist, but I believe that everything is connected and that everything matters. So we are similar but extremely different in that way. It's you know, there's so many different kinds of of private death, and it's it's really interesting. I've seen. I've I've experienced quite a lot of of death. I've had a death of someone who died before I got to make peace with them. The natural death, mm-hmm. which was like my grandmother. Have you ever gotten an inheritance? Because yeah. I did. Mm-hmm. It was like the worst thing ever. I mean, it was great because you have like some money, but you're like getting it because someone died. And like all my cousins were like such a-holes and they were like oh thank you so much grandma we're so happy for this money like on these email chains and all i could think in my head was like you bag of dicks like mm. i would so much rather like just have my grandma like <laughs> who think, cares about this money i think it's easier for me to grieve for other people's losses than for my than own for because own. i feel pressured to grieve or i'm so in the middle of it then just the stoic inside me kicks in but i i went to a friend's um mother's funeral last year and i hadn't seen this friend in a while i hadn't seen the mother in a while but she was really nice to me when i was in high school the mother and the friend and i kind of came a little late to the funeral i wasn't even sure i was going to go and i sort of snuck in and sat in the back row and this uh, mother who died, she was so beautiful and vibrant. It was she got cancer and died quickly. It was very very tragic, and everyone was 
really grieving, but also telling wonderful stories about this wonderful person and laughing and crying. It was so intense. And mm-hmm. I was I was bawling and because it was like watching a movie mm-hmm. where you it was a cathartic outsider experience. And I loved it and I walked away feeling so cleansed. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that's ever gonna happen to me like with my own family or friends because I would just shut down. But yeah. so, but so I, I don't know. I would recommend going to funerals if you have the chance because it's it's an. It, what a strange recommendation! We're always go. here. We're just keeping it real. You know what's funny is like, there, we've had some profound losses. A cousin of mine um, died in a motorcycle accident, and it was awful. I had just found out that I was pregnant, like literally the day he died, um, and that was like really. It was kind of horrific, but. I, in a way, like, some of these, like, very shocking deaths that I've experienced, um, I feel like they've truly, like, helped propel me to be a better human being. Like, I feel like in some ways when death happens, and I know that everyone's different, and to some people, they might think that what I'm about to say is, like, ridiculous. I don't know. But, like, when someone dies, I feel this added thing of, like, taking that on and like being the most authentic and happy and genuine and to like really chase after the things that I want with like everything I have because they're not here to do that. And that's like definitely, I don't know, for me, like it helps me with my grief, like to say like, be the best fill in the blank that I can be today, tomorrow and like next year so that when I look back, like I don't ever feel like it was wasted and that I kind of, like, carried that with me. That and also, like, the profound losses that we experienced, particularly in my mid-20s, ha- helped me to not be an angry person. Mm. Because, I mean, especially when a friend of the family, I, I was not particularly close to her, um, but she died in a car accident. She was 22. And I remember thinking to myself, and I, and both my husband and I, because we hadn't been married that long, um, like, we kind of realized at that moment that, like, any time one of us walks out the door, you just don't know if you're going to see that person again. I mean, in a way, it's like a morbid way to look at it, but... You know, as Yoda says, the fear of loss is the path to the dark side. And it's like, if you can, you know, if you can let people go in love, then it's like, it's okay. You know, whatever, like, I always want to leave it all on the table. Like, even when in a situation comes up and my husband and I, we had a, a thing about a week ago, we were angry with each other over something. And I said to him, like, we can't just be angry. Let's not be angry with each other. Like, it's just not a way to... You know, we don't want to, like, carry this around with us or whatever. And, you know, I don't because nothing is ever guaranteed. We just really don't know at the end of the day if we're going to see our loved ones. And I sometimes it's harder to remember that than others. Like, some, like a, you know, when I'm trying, like, for mm-hmm. example, I remember, like, this one day, like, I'm trying to go and my mom's trying to, like, tell me this story. And I'm like, ah, but I got to go. Like, I got the kid all loaded up in the car. And then, like, I had to, like, stop and tell myself, like, what if today, like, I drove away mm-hmm. and I never saw her again and I rushed through this conversation, you know, and that felt so unresolved. So I, like, you know, took a deep breath and said to myself, like, just listen to what your mom has to say. Yeah, you really have to think 
frequently in life about will I regret this? Will yeah. I regret that? Impermanence I, is a real it's a real and true thing and like it's hard. It's it is, hard to live life. But that it way. is a gift that death gives us. Like I, you know, and I I totally did not plan on talking about this, but like it's a, a large part of my meditation practice and it's like, you know, like the day my dog died <laughs> this year in September, it was like my family from Mexico was here for the first time in four years. And I was so worried about like making this visit. Like, oh, I gotta like show them how great I am and how great my kid is and how great my husband is and how great my life. You know, like you feel all this pressure to like do all the things in like the three days they're here. And I hadn't seen them in a really long time since my wedding, I think. And, um, I was just really, I really, so they get here, we go out to dinner, I come home, my dog dies, Mm -hmm. and here I am, like, my dog's dying, my husband's been at his new job for 10 days, Um, you know, I've got this one-year-old kid, like, it was, it felt like it couldn't have been more wrong, but then, like, then, you know, my aunt and my uncle, they come. They do the dog funeral with us. I you got chiggers on my ankles you after reciting chiggers. a Tennyson poem. It was, I, But it was, like, the most beautiful moment. And there was literally no way I could have ever shown them or, or manufactured a more perfect moment to show them what my life was really like. Yeah. That was what my life was really like right then. And I, they would not have seen that had it not been, like, it was, like... I loved my Oscar, but it was like his final gift to me. Like, I'm going to die, but I'm going to give you like the most like loving, authentic moment you could have with your family while they're here. It was amazing. It is a source of coming together. Um, Anything profound in life, whether it's art or death or birth, uh, are chances for people to come together. Before we get to our bottom lines, a quick question. Have you had have you had a friend? in your generation, die on, uh, and no, see it on Facebook, see that it happened on Facebook. Yes. Yes, That's I have. That's a very startling yes, experience. Yes, I have. I had a friend. Twice. Three times. I had someone die recently, a younger sister of a friend who I grew up around all the time, and I'd been seeing her go downhill on Facebook. Her posts were getting more depressing. I don't know what the cause of death was, but I you know, you don't, don't, think, it, don't think it was good. Wow. And, and that's a very... That was tough, having seen her sort of downward spiral on Facebook Mm. and no one really intervening. And I'm sure there were efforts to intervene among her loved ones, but... And then all of a sudden you see the in memoriam post from her friends. I'm like, oh my God. It's very shocking to find out stuff like that on social media, but it happens because when you're not immediately connected or even when it's a closed community member and that happened, which happened to us just last year, um, the anniversary of his death is coming up. In fact, it, you know, it's nice to see everybody's like outpouring and the weird, you know, the weirdest thing about it is when you have a number of dead friends whose Facebook accounts are still open How for long you. do they keep them open for? What's well, the Well, so you can change them to, like, memorial statuses. Will they stay there forever? Statuses, yeah, forever. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. And in a way, it's kind of, it's like a virtual grave. It's kind of nice because yeah. every once in a while it'll pop up in my feed or I'll see something and I'll just, like, it's a good memory of that person in a way. I like that. I've never written a novel and always wanted to. So my hope is that Facebook will come up with a way to just 
press print and print out all of my posts from Facebook <laughs> my entire because I post very literarily on Facebook and uh, and I would just love for Facebook to have that function so yeah. that all everything I've ever written on Facebook could be bound and turned into a book and uh, my genius would be preserved for, for all time. until the aliens discover so, the time capsule. What's your bottom line on this uh, on this topic? I guess it's, my bottom- very, it's very encompassing. It's went a little longer than yeah. normal, but hey, it's our podcast. We do what we want. We do what we want. Um, my bottom line is that the baby boomer generation is getting older, and yeah. so we think we think we've seen a lot of concentrated deaths recently with um, Bowie and Prince and Merle Haggard. But this is just—it's going to ramp up. It's going to cascade mm-hmm. more and more. They're—they're going to be dropping like flies, and um, I wonder what—I wonder what's going to happen at that point. Whether people are going to start getting death fatigue and not doing what we just did with Prince, where there's this kind of totally passionate outpouring of grief. It, I think as, um, as the boomers, as it, the, the frequency of the deaths increases, it's going to be interesting to see how we deal with that as a culture and whether the media can afford to really dwell so passionately on each of these people passing away. Because there's so many famous people. And it's going to be interesting to watch. Oh, my feelings about death can be summed up in a quote about life. And that is, it goes on. And it just does. Like, it's, it's just a part of life. It's a reminder. It's sometimes a very painful reminder. Um, And I think, you know, we have to remember that we can't be crippled by even the most shocking deaths and that we have to carry those people with us because that's the way that we are remembered. And as you know, Einstein says, energy is never created or destroyed. So where do we really go? Well, I say everywhere and Paul says nowhere. So when you die, your hair grows as long as Einstein's. Yeah. Well, that's one way to look at it. We will be right back with our second segment, which is equally depressing, the 2016 election. Oh, the 2016 election. This is a segment that we almost didn't record um, because it's just so fatiguing at this point of the election. But wake up, everyone. Yeah, because... You know, then it was like Trump was in Delaware, so the election's just so juicy, so how could we stay away? Yeah, it's only like we're electing the leader of the free world. Not a big deal. It's fine to be fatigued about it. I'm being sarcastic now, if you can. I mean, let's start with the Democrats, because today I was watching MSNBC, as I generally do when my child takes a nap, and um, it was, I don't know the pundit's name, but it was a female and she was a woman is the politically correct term. Women take offense at when you use female as a noun. Well, I'm not offended. The feminists are gonna lynch you, Billy. Huh. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> you almost uh, said it. I almost said the B word. Um, but she was on there and she was sort of being like, Bernie needs to just drop out, and he is attacking Hillary all over the place, saying things like she's unqualified and blah blah blah. And I'm gonna whine now because he just needs to drop out. And it's like, oh my god, shut up! Like at this point, I feel like the Hillary supporters are either from her 
thing today, I got that they're either scared, whiny, annoyed, or some combination of all three. It's like, guys, this because the other woman was like, listen, you know, we're kind of, we all want to have our voices heard, and Bernie supporters want the chance to vote in these last states, and they deserve that. And it's like, let's take a minute and step back, because... The Republican side has been particularly dirty, like they need a bath. And our side's been really, I would say our side, but I'm not really a Democrat. Our side's been particularly clean. I agree with that. And you make one statement when she says he's unqualified. She did not say that. That was a lie. She was, Joe Scarborough pressed her uh, to say he was, and she said, well, he didn't do his homework, which was true If it, for anyone who read the New York Daily News interview with him. Which was a setup. It was a setup. Oh, oh, it was a setup. Who's scared and whining now, Billy? I'm not saying that. I'm saying they set out to make him look like a moron. Excuse me. That's a reporter's job. And if you are running for president, you should have good answers to questions about your central policy Look, planks. I don't disagree with that but I'm just saying you know it's a semantics thing it's like okay she said that he said that whatever no she did not say it was unqualified he's mm. he then he then mis- she implied okay but then he she was very and he careful, just though. came out and said it you know why she's careful because she's the least authentic person in this race my god I mean I want a president who's grating. careful I don't want a president who's flying off the handle and expressing poor judgment by saying things like the Democratic frontrunner is unqualified. I think she is unqualified, if only by fact that she could be indicted by the FBI and and another thing. Because, (laughs) (laughs) you know... Your Bernie impression. She could actually lose against whoever the nominee, Trump, on the Republican side is. So... I don't think that independents have been heard at all, which I think is personally... See, this. okay, let me just get this out, because what I think needs to happen is the RNC and the DNC need to be dissolved. What needs to happen in this election is that everybody should get to run. Hillary wants to be the Democratic nominee? Fine. Cruz wants to be the Republican nominee? Fine. Trump and Bernie, they could be independent nominees running side by side. Everybody gets to run. Let's settle this with a real vote. It's like a monster car wreck. Caucuses are rigged and people know it now. Okay, here's the thing Hillary is winning. And the Bernie's, the Bernie supporters don't like it. And so they are saying that the system is rigged when in fact. The things that make it rigged are helping Bernie, such as the caucuses, which are totally undemocratic and unfair, which he is winning by and large, such as the dark delegates, which he is doing better at getting than Hillary, such as the super delegates, which are his only way path to victory. This guy who says he's the tribune of the people and blasts everything anti-democratic is leaning on an anti-democratic device, the superdelegates, as his only way to win. No, no, because no, no, he 
can't beat Hillary in the actual votes and in the actual delegates. So give me a break about the system being rigged against Bernie. It's rigged for Bernie, and he's still losing. That is and the such Bernie people BS. cannot accept that. That is such BS. First of all, Hillary has bought superdelegates. She donated in a trickle-down la-di-da that's going to cinch her up those delegates. And explain to me how Bernie gets more votes and she gets more delegates. Because that's how it works in some states, because Bernie might win a a district with a university, with lots of people, the biggest uh, concentration of a population in a state. But then, you know, so he gets delegates for that district. Hillary then might win like the rest of the state or a lot of the rest of the state, get delegates for those districts. Now, you could say that all of the delegates, you know, it should be winner take all in every state and um, this delegate distribution should be different. There's also an argument for evening out the distribution and not having, like, you know, the populist university counties, say, in a state, get the, the, the vast majority of the delegates. Here's a radical idea. What if we just did away with the delegates altogether, put it to a popular vote, and let independents decide which side they want to go to, Republican or Democrat? Wouldn't that, in theory, be much more fair than what's going on? And then, then Hillary would win. Fine. Then yeah. fine. Then she wins. But... When you break it down and it's all this complicated stuff, you know what it seems like? It seems like they're just trying to kind of have these loopholes so you can get rid of a Trump or you can get rid of a Hillary Clinton or a Bernie Sanders if you want. To me, that's the problem. And this is where I actually believe that Trump should be the Republican nominee because if he's winning, he's winning. Fine. Boom. Bang. I don't care. But... If Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, then I think that Sanders needs to be the Democratic nominee. I don't think... Why? Because I think... He's not winning. He's losing. He is winning. He is winning. In your mind, in in your unicorn fantasy world, he's winning. It is not a unicorn fantasy world. Hillary's gotten many, many more votes than him. She has... He does not have enough of the Democratic constituency to win. He is not winning minorities. He is not winning enough of the Democratic pool to win. He's got his guys and they're a significant portion of the Democratic constituency, but she has more of the pie of the actual people and I'm sick of her success with the voters being invalidated by whining Bernie supporters. And moreover... And moreover, I'm sick of the Bernie supporters saying that they may not support Hillary. Because you know what? I would, of course, support Hillary. It's ridiculous for for them to say that. But at the same time... I feel the opposite. See, it looks to me like the media tries to be like, hey, guys, he's defeated. Just give it up. Just give it up. Just give it up. He is. They've been saying the whole time. It's mathematically impossible for him to win now, basically. You know, what's funny about that is that Obama lost New York by a larger margin than Bernie Sanders did. I mean, when you compare the election of Obama to what's going on now in the primaries, there are so many parallels. I mean, I'm not saying that he necessarily has the chance that he had a month ago. I don't know that he does. But then also we need to look at some things that happen. The two last states that she won are being investigated for major voter fraud right now. Yeah, and that was kind of fishy. I, I it, do agree with that. It's very fishy. And I think, you know, it's weird that 120,000 people in Brooklyn are mysteriously dropped. I mean, there's a lot going on. And, you know, like, when you look back in, in history and election, like, 
would uh, JFK ever been elected without the mob? Man, don't think so. Like, I kind of feel like there's this, there's this dirty undercurrent. And I don't think that it's, like, personal. Like, I don't take it personally. But I just think the establishment is so strong in its story that it doesn't want to be undermined. And the only reason that Trump is able to undermine it is he is the perfect storm of money, like, personality. Celebrity. celebrity. Let's get to Trump in a moment, but I want to finish yeah, off Yeah, I'm with, not trying to downshift, no, no, but no. I'm just saying. Like, I want to finish off with Sanders and Clinton. I, I A lot of the pundits are saying that the rift between Obama and Hillary supporters was worse uh, in 2008 than the rift is now between Sanders supporters and Clinton supporters. And they cite polls that say there were more people back then who said uh, they would never support either uh, Obama or Hillary uh, if they were the nominee and their person didn't win than there are now doing the same thing. But I, I disagree with this analysis because even though there may have been more people back then saying that, I think the intensity of the Sanders supporters now is greater. And th- because it's an ideological yeah, I was and say, policy difference. This is, the difference there, there between was, them is more philosophical than Obama and yeah, Hillary. That, there was like no daylight between Obama and Hillary's actual yeah, policy proposals. True. Which is a popularity contest, whereas now... Bernie really was does want to go much further with the democratic socialist welfare state, uh, and he's a new dealer. He's a he's a new dealer. He's a new and dealer. Hillary, but here's the thing: Hillary is way closer to him on ninety percent of his policies than whatever Republican would be. This, can I and, just bring up something that I don't understand? That I will never freaking understand, like. I saw the short, like, not the short list. I don't know what the real short list is. But I saw a list of who will Hillary choose as her running mate today on MSNBC. The fact that Bernie Sanders' face does not appear in that lineup troubles me deeply. Because (laughs) what I don't understand, isn't that kind of the perfect way to unite the party? And then people said the same thing between, like, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Like, if he would have picked her as the vice president, she would have, in more ways, been a shoo-in. Well, Bernie's not a team player, and the job of the vice president... That is, is not to, true. Yes, it Did is. you see his latest interview? Because when he sat down and he said, like, at the end of the day, I'm going to unite the party. I don't think we're going to have trouble uniting. I just want to see this through. I hope he does, but the fact he is, he was, an, he was an independent for his entire career until he decided to run for president. He did not accomplish a lot in the Senate because his main job was to scream and yell and be a purist. And he's not... Yeah, at least he's consistent. He, yeah, he's, and I think it's great. And look, I, I'm, I've been a Hillary supporter. However, I'm glad that he has dragged Hillary to the left on economic issues and, on, um, and called out Hillary for her intervention on foreign policy issues, which is the thing that troubles me the most about Hillary, actually. I actually and, think that and she's so going to be I, a warmonger, and that's what worries me about It is disturbing. Her. I agree. That's the biggest worry for me about Hillary. But um, so I'm glad he's dragged her. I'm glad he's dragged her to the left. But he has been a protest purist candidate who doesn't even really understand the implications of his policies, as the Daily Mail interview, excuse me, the Daily News interview demonstrated. And he's not. He's he's an ideas guy, and you he and a purist and and a protester and not a team player. And that's what you want the vice president to be is someone who's going to be a yes man. Can you imagine Bernie being a yes man? Can you imagine him? The vice president has to be. 
like the sidekick, the guy who's in, who's just going to defend whatever the president does, basically, maybe behind the scenes disagree a little bit, but who's not, but who's going to be the the uh, the, the henchman uh, who's going to help the president do everything the president wants to do. There's Personally, no way Bernie would ever do that. I think he could. I think. But this is the thing about like politics today is it's like this is what I have to say I like about this election the very very most is that this is how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be dirty. I totally agree. It's supposed to be a fight. It's supposed to be my ideals against your ideals and whose ideals are going to win and let's get in the trenches and really friggin' talk about like what is important to us and that is actually happening. I'm scared about who's going to win but it's actually really happening. And so I'm I'm not afraid of the uh, raucous fight between Hillary and Bernie so long as the supporters of Bernie, and let's face it, it's going to be Bernie because he's going to lose, unless Hillary's indicted, which is a possibility over the emails thing. That I So long as the Bernie supporters can grow up and be mature and understand that Hillary is, they have to support Hillary if they want Bernie's policies to be enacted because she is closer to Bernie on minimum wage, on regulating Wall Street, on college tuition, on equal rights for minorities. And moreover, there are going to be tons of Supreme Court justices, up to four, nominated by the next president. And they are going to be the ones who have things like Citizens United in their hands, which is Bernie's key platform point. You know, there, there's no way Citizens United is ever going to be overturned if, if, if Trump gets elected. So when I hear Bernie supporters saying, well, you know, I, like Susan Sarandon, idiot, saying, well, maybe it'd be better to have Trump because then that would cause the revolution to start sooner. Oh, yeah, like we're really going to have some kind of Leninist armed revolution in this country. I think that's and naive. But it's naive. But, and, but a lot of people but, think a lot of people, we talked to someone very close to, to a friend of the show who was thinking that way. We need last to night. talk about this. And this is a perfect opportunity to shift into the, the Trump issue because our time is not endless, but also because, you know, people really, really dislike Hillary. They dislike her enough and they dislike the establishment enough to almost be able to justify the Trump presidency existing. And it we were about 45 minutes into a conversation last night with a friend of the show. That's right. When all three of us realized that we were trying to talk ourselves into why it wouldn't be that bad. Unknowingly. Yeah, we were kind of like, well, we don't support Trump, but but this, but but that. that. And this is the thing. But, you know, before we get into any of that, I was really thinking today about how we how we got here how the the disenfranchisement of conservative voters who overwhelmingly support Trump like how did this happen i was really like thinking to myself and you know being a president it's a big job it's like he's like the ultimate like representative of the american people and whatever but there's no way you can blame this phenomenon on Obama because his profile is pretty low. I mean, people hate him, but they hate him because they're racist and stupid. They don't really hate his policies the way that they think they do. Um, because what really landed us in this very precarious position to to have Trump as a possible president is Congress, right? The House and Senate, the unchecked lobbying, the terms being unlimited, um, the the ridiculous notion that these people can just have careers as long as they want that 
really they're just worried about being reelected. They're not worried about policy. These are the people who are actually making the changes. And who are actually as, doing the thing. As far as the policies, it was a bipartisan trade agreement in 2000, uh, pioneered by Clinton. I think sort of Bush oversaw it as well. That it was a free trade agreement that. Um, opened up trade a lot with China, and there was an assumption that, uh, yes, there'd be some job losses in the U.S., but it would be offset by all of the benefits to the American economy. Well, it worked out worse than the elites thought it would. And a lot of factory workers in these key states, many of which are swing states, lost their jobs because of this trade agreement. And these people are Trump's base. It's often white, blue-collar guys who were screwed by free trade. And, and who they're can blaming, blame them? Blaming, who can blame them? And so it's very easy to skip, sca- scapegoat immigrants for taking their jobs. Which is which is, another, which is how I knew, by the way, that Trump was going to go so far. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I've been predicting from the start that Trump was a serious force, might very well win the nomination. I'm one of a handful of brilliant Million pundits who did, were predicting that, and the way I knew is because the immigration thing is such a third rail for the um, media, and the Republican base has been stifled in its discussion of it. Fox News supports immigration reform, amnesty, as the as the Republican uh, Trump's supporters would call it, and so I and you know George W. Bush tried to pass it, it went down in flames because of talk radio. So, anyways, I knew Trump was going to go far, and and I think. People are still underestimating him. He could do very well against Hillary, in large part because his base is are in states like Pennsylvania, like Ohio, like North Carolina, and he has a lot of support in Florida. So the places where he happens to have this intense passion are also the places that are like the most important states in well, the general also, election. Let's just, but let's just cut through some of this naive bull, because to say that immigration is the biggest problem facing the American worker it's is ridiculous. just straight up ignorant. Yeah, the biggest problem is that we're shipping jobs overseas. They're making it cheaper and they're poisoning us with lead and well, other materials. You could also phrase but, that as globalization, but, which and is that's inevitable. Fine. If you want to be a global citizen, fine. And robots and but the mechanization. It, but what people also need to come to grips with is that if you want to have factories that make stuff in America, which I am completely in support of and I think is a fabulous idea, you have to pay those people $15 an hour and we're going to have to pay more for those things that are made. My friend tells me, like, clothes in Uruguay cost a lot more than they cost here because they're made there. It's like, you know, you're going to have to pay a little more for these things. So don't have pie-in-the-sky ideas that you're getting your Old Navy shirts for $5 when they're made in Ohio right, because right, you're not. Right. Because it's going to cost $15 an hour for people to make them. So, you know... And Trump is being kind of honest about that. He's actually said, you're going to have to pay more for some of your goods, but more people have jobs. And so that is the trade-off. So, okay. And I'm cool with that. I'm but not sure. Everyone's... I don't know if he can deliver yeah. on that necessarily. Okay, so I want to get into uh, Trump's chances to win this thing. I've viewed this whole primary on the Republican side as an image. And the image is an anaconda swallowing a large mammal. So the first phase... Swallowing, say, an elephant? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I wish I were an editorial cartoonist so I could draw that. Yeah. But it's the Someone fir- do that The it. first phase was like this giant, epic anaconda wrestling with uh, the baby elephant. And there was this snorting and stomping and, and uh, horn blowing and hissing. And that was Jeb Bush being... 
booted out and, and Jebra. You know, Jebra. And that was the sort of messy part. And then there was this moment of maybe Super Tuesday around when he finally got his mouth around, his fangs around the elephant. And then after that, you still had some kicking, and uh, the, the, the elephant is sort of wriggling its feet and trying to get out of the snake's mouth, but slowly, steadily, the snake is swallowing it. And then the last debate I think we had, you could sense that the air had kind of gone out of the animal, the, 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 the will to fight. I have and, to say. And, and it's been like that. And I think the last sort of kicking of the leg that we saw was after Wisconsin when Trump lost and the anti-Trump forces were crowing. But then after he won New York, I was, I was, I was, I was listening, but there was a psychological shift and it's part of the fatigue we were talking about with this election. Um, and I was listening to conservative podcasts and radio and you could sense that they're starting to give up. And there's this notion, um, that he's he even if he doesn't get uh, the uh, uh, twelve hundred and thirty seven delegates, he's going to come close enough that he might be able to get enough unbound delegates. Uh, we had a member of the RNC Rules Committee saying, "Well, he only needs to win eleven hundred. We've had Carl Rove showing signs that he could come around to Trump, but Paul Ryan say that let me tell you uh, that he, that he's not going to accept the nomination, and that he Paul Ryan thinks that someone who who, uh, who gets a nomination should be someone who's been running. And really quickly, the reason why I I think the GOP want, wants to avoid a contested convention, they have a lot to lose. They control the Senate and the House. They have more state legislatures than they've ever controlled in history. They have 34 Republican governors. Their priority is to not pee it all away. They want to keep the party together. And I think they think, well, if it's going to be Trump this time, yes, we're going to alienate a lot of Republicans with that, but they'll come back to us after Trump. But if they They're steal wrong. it, if they steal it from Trump, if they if they if they 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 put Trump off the rails at the election and give it to a Paul Ryan, I think they know that they could permanently alienate the Trump base and and lose a lot of what they have as a party. Um, what do they have as a party? Because they, they really don't. As I just said, they have everything but the White House. Yeah, but you know, I mean, listen. The- they are going to be sorely disappointed if Trump gets the White House because Trump is not who he says he is. And this is kind of what we were talking ourselves into yesterday, but there were signs of it all over. The the Caitlyn Jenner comments of Caitlyn Jenner can use whatever tr- whatever Trump bathroom yeah. whatever bathroom she wants. He supports planned parenthood. Whether or not he supports abortion, that is a finite detail because he can't change Roe v. Wade. And you know, I don't think he supported Clinton in the past. So how different could he really be? So, I mean, you know, he people have been sold a bill of good. Like he's like going to tell them whatever they want to hear so that he can get elected in his ego stroke of the century. But is Trump who he says he is? I don't think so. I don't think he is who he says he is. I don't want to believe he is who he says he is either. I so, I mean, that's a it, it's a double-edged sword because a person like me, you know, listen, I remember just briefly going back when John Kerry lost to George W. Bush. I, I was inconsolable. It was the first election I had ever voted in, and I was crying. I was crying, and I called my mom and said, oh, my God, I'm so and my mom's like, oh, honey, I felt this way when Reagan got elected, too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we're going to see these these types of things in our lifetime. 
Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. Hail Mary, Jesus Christ. I hope it's not going to be the end of the world. I don't think it's going to be the end of the world. I, I Unfortunately, none of these people are going to put Gatorade in our water fountains. Um, even Bernie Sanders. If I had my way and Bernie Sanders was elected, we're not going to go as far left as a country as we would hope we would. If Trump is elected, I hope that we're not going to go as far right as you know, we said we would. I, I don't know. I don't have the answers to that. Um, all I can tell you is that I'm very into Chinese astrology. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the year of the monkey. This is a very, very unpredictable year. Of year of the snake eating the monkey. No. this The year of the monkey is, is classically a very unpredictable. The monkeys are very smart. They're very cunning. Um, anything can happen. So I wouldn't throw in the towel on anything in this election. Not even Bernie getting getting the nomination. Anything can happen at any time. And I think that's, that's kind of what we're seeing. I think it destabilizes people in a way that feels very scary. But honestly... At the end of the day, which is my thing I like to say, at the end of the day, I think it's going to be okay. I think it's going to be good for us, no matter the outcome. Even Trump's supporters' voices deserve to be heard because they are still people, uneducated as some of them may be, as raw as some of their... And some of them are quite educated. And, and some of them are quite educated. Some of them are quite racist. Some of them are quite not. You know, it's a very thick soup, Mm-hmm. What's going on right now? And I think that maybe, despite the outcome, we may be edging closer to true democracy. And that, I think, is what's missing in our country. And I think social media has helped it because it's allowed, yeah, the, it can- probably has. It's allowed the candidates to reach people directly and, and differently. go above the mainstream media. I agree it's been very democratic with... Um, Bernie and and Trump leading these populist movements, although I'm a little frightened of uh, Trump's populism, and I'll make that my bottom line for okay. this Go for topic. Um, I think that, yes, Trump is a faker to some extent, especially on social issues we've seen. Like, he has no idea what he's talking about, about abortion or transgender issues. He doesn't really care. Uh, he's from New York. But he has been expressing a nationalist uh, platform for decades now. And you go back and listen to interviews with him from 20, 30 years ago, and he's saying a lot of the same things about um, China, this anti-Chinese attitude, and also immigrants. Um, and and more recently, Muslims. And as a friend of the show said last night, it's he's, he's going to turn the general election into an us versus them mentality. And I'm not sure I'd call that racist so much as just nativist and nationalist because it's an equal opportunity. I use the example of South Park offending everyone with their jokes and therefore not being discriminatory. I'm not sure. I wouldn't say Trump is a bigot necessarily toward any group. He's, it's just America first and America versus what he perceives as traditional American Val, uh, not values, but success versus uh, the rest of the world. And I, when he he recently started using the slogan "America First," which dates back to an, an ignominious group that didn't not want the U.S. to enter World War II. So, which I'm glad we did. So the "America First" slogan has a bad history, but when he said that, it honestly really resonated with me because. 
it does seem like common sense that we would want our trade deals and our foreign policy to represent the best interests of American citizens before anyone else from any other country. And sometimes it is a zero-sum game. We win, other people lose. And our, in even our immigration policy, I, should, I would say, should reflect the best interests of citizens first. And I, the Democrats, I'm, I'm not saying that Trump's policies would help American citizens more than the Democrats' policies would, but the Democrats haven't been speaking in that kind of populist America first rhetoric. And they should. And they should say our policies are better for the American citizen. We're fighting for the American citizen. Uh, we're not going to prioritize the rest of the globe before anyone else in our country. And But they're not talking those terms. And I think if Hillary... Wa- because I think it's going to be Hillary versus Trump. If she wants to beat him, she needs to stop saying we're going to tear down barriers and not build walls. We're going to and and start saying, well, we may not build a wall, but we need to protect the best interests of people in this country. That is the job of politicians in this country. And here's how I'm going to do it. Because if she cedes that ground to Trump, it's going to resonate with a lot of of people, especially in these swing states that have tough economies and people that are really hurting. Well, that's a tough act to follow, Paul. Um, you know, I, I don't really disagree with a lot of the things that you said. I, I think my bottom line in this election is that it is going to be a battle royale um, the whole way. I don't think, you know, I I feel like no matter who wins in November, we're all just going to be so damn relieved it's over, that we're not even going to care. Um, I mean, it, it's a very interesting moment for America. This could this could go pretty wrong. Um, you know, it, I think Trump would be an embarrassment on our country, probably a huge disappointment. I don't know. Um, so I hope that it's anyone. I will be supporting anyone but Trump. I <laughs> just put it that way. I am a Bernie supporter, and I am an eternal optimist, which at this point may be a bad combination, but I'm going with it. I still see Bernie having a very narrow path to this nomination. I think he's the optimum candidate to, to go against Trump. Um, I think Hillary has a lot of problems, mainly that I don't like her. <laughs> and I don't know why. I'm sorry. I mean, You're sexist. Sorry. You're sexist. It must be because I am a self-loathing woman. Yeah. Um, I'm look, a self-loathing gay, so... I want to I want to see the, the glass ceiling shattered, and if she's the, the nominee, God bless her, I'll vote for her. But, um, you know, I, I also really am an idealist, and I... I I believe in America first, but in a different way. I, I believe that America first means that our education system is better, that we're not fighting wars, that everyone has health care. Um, Which Trump basically agrees with all of that. He does, but kind of in a way where it's like, it, he, he's not doing it out of love. He's doing it out of like, hate. I feel like. Mm. And I just can't, I can't get behind his message. I just can't. And I never will. And you know what? Whatever. I don't have to because I'm an American. Plus he's crazy and has an obsession with his hands. And who, yeah. who would want his finger on the nuclear button? That's why. No why. That is why no I, I honestly think he's mentally ill and a, nars- and a, and nar- a narcissistic. narcissistic personality yeah. disorder. But we want to hear kind of what you guys think. I mean, obviously we've waxed on this subject for quite a quite a while um and we hope that you're still with us but um you know let us know what you think about about our theories or about your own theories we're interested to hear as we come up to vote 
this Tuesday in Delaware. So uh, that'll do it for us here. We will be right back with our final thoughts. And now it's time for our final thoughts in which we talk about whatever we darn well please. My final thought is a short and sweet poem that I wrote yesterday. Uh, I write poetry. Some of it is a little more snooty and abstract and weird than other of my poems, which are simple and almost like pop music lyrics or song musical theater lyrics or whatever. So uh, this little poem is in my pop music mode, you could say. Um, Very brief. And it is dedicated to someone out there in our base of fans who are listening to the show. And he knows who he is. And the poem goes, Spare me a summer, won't you? It's hardly a large request. A summer with me, down by the sea, doing what we do best. Give me a try, why don't you? The future can wait till the fall. To hell with forever, and always, and never. Just spare me a summer, that's all. I love it. I love it. Thank you. My bottom line is about something that happened yesterday as we were talking and drinking and cooking. And it was like kind of one of those weird, like rainy days that kind of gave way to a rather nice evening. And we looked out the window and the... um, there's like a field in the back of my house and then there are really green trees at this point. Uh, they're very tall, very mature woods. Um, and, and they were so brilliant Mm. against the dark, almost like it was a dark blue, almost like a a soft shade of purple, Mm -hmm. uh, sky. And there, that spot in the back there, when the, the sun hits it just right, it just, it sings and it's just the most beautiful scenery and um i i toil and go back and forth because we live in a place that we've lived for almost 13 years and we love it here and we want to buy it so bad and it's just uh in flux and we're not sure if we'll be able to buy it or how long we'll be able to be here um it remains to be seen but as i was looking out on that just that gorgeous piece and i was with my best friend and I was with my family and I I turned to Paul and I said you think you can buy a place like this but really it just it owns you Mm -hmm. and that is how I felt yesterday in that moment I felt like I belonged to land and I wish everyone a moment like that this week so hopefully you can find a place you belong to whether that is in the cement jungle or the fields of (laughs) flat Delaware Um, because we all just want to be owned. Yeah. Not the way Harriet Tubman was owned, but... uh. Power to the $20 bill, y'all. $20 bills, (laughs) y'all! But yeah, so I wish you all a moment like that this week, uh, or any time in your life, really, because it's a a good feeling. And that's going to do it for us for this week. We have no idea when we'll be podcasting again, but when we do... We'll let you know. We hope you enjoyed this extra special, lengthy, luxurious podcast feast. Yes. Rinse and repeat. (laughs) Have a great day.